Welcome down to Security Rabbit Hole to a another down to Security Rabbit Hole podcast. This is Raf riding solo today. James is on the other end of the planet, but uh, travel delays and such, so you got me. Um, good news is I'm sitting here with somebody that's going to talk through uh, some fun stuff with us. As you guys probably know, we are in a state of panic over the uh, latest and greatest nuclear uh, thing that's going on in security. So uh, stand by and uh, you'll learn a whole bunch about it. Uh, in the meantime, we got Mr. Jeff Schilling here. It's going to talk to us and uh, give us a little bit of an explanation of what's going on. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Ralph. It's great to be here. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to participate in this discussion. It's, uh, it's been a fun week, to say the least. I, I think that's probably the least. That's the word I think that applies least. <laughs> if you're sitting out there in the, uh, on the enterprise side, man, uh, Spectre and Meltdown. It's been, uh, it's been an interesting thing. Uh, it, you know, it, it seems like it's, uh, it's one of those bugs that we've been talking and rumoring about for a while that wait till it gets in you know forget the software wait till this thing goes into the hardware and uh voila <laughs> here she is right in the hardware so uh before we dive into all that fun stuff let's give me a little bit about you and uh give me a little background and we'll uh we'll, you know kind of uh go from there okay so uh i i'm, I'm jeff Schilling. i'm the uh, chief security officer here at armor cloud security we're, we're a partner of uh, of optive and uh and, a, uh, and, and we basically provide security services both in on privately hosted cloud as well as into Azure AWS and Rackspace and, and other clouds. Um, so obviously this is having a big impact on us. As you can imagine, we've been doing a lot of planning this week like all the other cloud providers have. Busy weekend. Yeah, bu- busy weekend as well as uh, early last week. Um, to dive a little deeper into my background and kind of how I got here and why maybe uh, I'm a good person to talk on this subject is... Uh, Previous to uh, joining Armor and actually, you know, starting on a civilian career, I spent 24 years in the military. And um, in my last two roles in the military, I, I worked some pretty cool jobs in uh, cybersecurity. I was the uh, chief of current operations for an organization called Joint Task Force Global Network Operations, which later became Cyber Command. And I don't know that that's a huge mouthful. But in that, in that role, I basically ran the day-to-day operations of the Global Net Ops Center, which was essentially the security and operations center for the Department of Defense. And I did that during uh, 2007 to 2009 when there were some of the most interesting uh, nation-level or national-level uh, um, cybersecurity incidents that were going on. Let's just say that, that the uh, recent DNC election wasn't the first time we've tangled with the Russians in, in cyberspace. And so I've, I've, you know, I've been a part of global incident response similar to what everybody is going through with this, as well as what we saw with NotPetya and, and WannaCry previously this year. And then I did that for uh, I did that for two years, and I went uh, to Army Cyber Command and basically did the same thing. Became the chief of current operations. I guess they figured 
Um, if I figured out what I was doing at the DOD level, I could run the DOD's largest portion of the uh, of the network, or, or sit on the on the top of the security stack for the largest portion of the DOD network. So I did that for uh, for uh, two years, and uh, and as luck would have it, that was also the time when the uh, private Manning case kicked off, and I had to run oh, the. Boy. You know, so I always tell people I'm kind of like the Forrest Gump of uh, of cyber when it comes to Department <laughs> of Defense. I was never, you know, the three or four star in charge, but I was always that colonel that was there when all the bad things happened. You know, back in uh, late 2000, you know, 2007 to, to 2012, and then uh, and then I left uh, left the military, retired in 2012, and uh, joined SecureWorks, where I was their their director of global incident response. And then now I'm here at Armour. So uh, that's a little bit about my background. And so I do have some uh, experience in, uh, in kind of sitting back and watching how some of these big global events kick off and uh, definitely be happy to pass on some of the um, some of the lessons learned I've had. Because trust me, I was not born a 51-year-old man. I hopefully have gotten smarter as I've uh, <laughs> gotten more and more experiences and uh, would be more than happy to share with your audience some of, the, some of my observations in this and and kind of what our way forward here is a is a major cloud provider. Well, so let's set the stage here because you've got two major things hitting the headlines, right? Spectre and Meltdown effectively uh, exploiting a, a 20, uh, this blows my mind, it's a 20-year-old bug in a CPU that's been around, you know, for a while. Um, but it's it has to do with that, that whole, uh, what do you call it, speculative execution, like the look-ahead function. So there's a great, uh, if you guys read Uproxx, there's a great uh, article about it. It explains it in fairly plain English. But essentially it says, you know, if you load a browser and you open up Facebook and your browser goes, hey, I'm probably going to want to pull the password file just so I can uh, log this person in. So your CPU goes ahead and your computer goes ahead and does that. Um, and, and so, you know, all your applications uh, from are supposed to be separate from each other. Your applications are supposed to be separate from the way your kernel and your, your, your computer actually the, the operating system runs. It turns out that there's some cheating going on, uh, if that's what you want to call it. Um, speculative execution, I like that term better. It feels less uh, bad, I guess. <laughs> well, I love the logo. You know, the logo is not only a ghost because they say this is going to haunt us forever because they say that while we know of two vulnerability CVEs are out there. They think that there are a lot more that can be uh, um, possible. Oh, good. So they, they uh, the logo is a ghost and it's holding a branch, which I thought was pretty clever because of the uh, the way the uh, the bug works, uh, taking advantage of speculative ex- execution of the branches that the that the uh, processor uses or executes. Uh, you know, trying to anticipate what you're going to do. So I, I thought those were pretty interesting the way they pull those together. So the, the, the explanation of what each of them are and why they're different, and, and the article that uh, we pulled this from, is a, it said, uh, you know, the cracks between processor and application, that's the meltdown portion. And then, like, the, uh, the we'll call them inconsistencies or cracks between, uh, in the wall between applications, that's that's your specter, there's your ghost. Uh, but, all right, so all this aside, right, we, we, we've been talking in security about this, I don't know about this, but something like this coming. It's been bugs in the hardware, bugs in the software, bugs in the software, bugs in the software, and I can remember pretty far back, some of us going, yeah, but wait till this hits, you know, wait till we find a bug in something like, you know, uh, some something basic, right? And then we found it in, in uh, OpenS- LibOpenSSL, and it was like, ooh, Heartbleed, bad. Like, no, no, this is getting worse. It'll be in the hardware. And I think a lot of us kind of gave a nervous shrug and said, yeah, I don't know, hardware is good. And it turns out, Nope, nothing's immune. Yeah, I, I tell you, hardware. You know, when you when you think about it from a cyber 
cyber attack mode. You know, hardware hardware um, flaws or hardware injects that you put in are, are some of the most difficult to detect if you can detect oh, yeah. them at all. Yeah. And and so this one, while this isn't a a uh, you know a, a particularly a, a attack now, it is a vulnerability that a threat actor could take advantage of. And, and could you imagine the difficulty and you know. Probably the way this would present to a uh, to an incident response person is, wow, you know, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm following the uh, the host forensic and the network forensics, but I don't see where this guy escalated privileges. I'm not sure how he got that uh, password, you know, that that allowed them to go from user to to uh, to to privilege access. I'm sure that's happened before, though. Yeah. That maybe you know somebody somewhere is going. Oh hell! Now this makes sense. Yeah, and you know, and that's and that's that's how this would present itself. There, there's no one. No one's going to come up with a with a tool that's a standalone tool that uh, you know takes takes advantage of these uh, three vulnerabilities. It'll be integrated into other tools, and it would be that escalate. That at least that's the way I would leverage it. Would be for the privilege escalation portion of the attack when you're trying to uh, you know gain persistence and move laterally. And um, so I, I, you know you got to wonder you know has you know maybe some of the nation state actors known about this for a while and have they been exploiting it? and has this been confounding uh, instant responders for years I can tell you my experience I've never run into it and I'll, I'll say that in my government experience as well um, you know uh, you know but you know as well as in my uh, you know my uh, my time with SecureWorks, we never ran into uh, you know where we couldn't figure out somebody escalated privileges usually there's a good forensic trail to that this would be one of those that uh, if you've never seen it before and you didn't know to look at a hardware flaw, that it would probably be pretty tricky. Well, and, and speaking of nation state, right? So there is a uh, there's a there's a marked effort here where some where, you know they, they, somebody spent some time really digging into this and finding a way to exploit. This isn't something you're gonna do in your basement uh, necessarily, right? So it, we were talking before we sit here record about the kind of the kind of threat actors, right? So we're going back to let's understand where our adversaries are. Let's, let's look at the threat model. And it turns, as, as I think you, we rightly agree here, this is not Joe Attacker, right? Like, right? Somebody that's going to exploit hardware. It's going to take you. Is This requires resources, right? The way the Uproxx article writes it is uh, the good news is that Spectre and Meltdown are insanely complex that are difficult to exploit. Difficult but not impossible, and as they say, with money, anything is possible. So I, I you know, the, this almost makes it one of those, you know, if you can find it, certainly, most almost certainly, kind of a nation state type of activity. Yeah, we uh, always like to categorize. You know, first thing I do when I'm building a security strategy is kind of categorize the threats that you're against, whether you know it's in cyberspace or, you know, hell, if I'm on, you know, on the on the ground in Afghanistan with an infantry organization as their signal officer, and um, and so when when I got here to Armor, we we uh, we designed our defense around three classes of actors and i think that's what you're going to yeah. and uh we you know we're pretty simple here you know uh, we can't count them more than three fingers so it's uh, a b and c you know with the uh, a actors being the most sophisticated nation state level actors um actors who come up with uh, zero day um exploits who create their own code um for the most part also you know another attribute of a of a, a level actor is they also cover their tracks and and put anti-forensics type of uh Capabilities into their tool sets yeah. that uh, you know stump forensic investigations, and, and a lot of times uh, nation state actors also will pair close access activity with remote access, meaning they don't just count on um, someone uh, opening an email. They may 
turn a flipping employee and and, yeah. and, and manage a well, it's uh, the access to resources yeah right? it's just, it's the, you can the ability to continue to a, a persistent attack yeah uh, and that that separates those that that a that a gamer right the yeah. the people that really uh, that have a goal right because we talk about mission oriented your adversaries that are actually nation state are probably more looking to do more than just root around the system or grab a document they're looking to be persistent they're looking to be right. stealthy they will use means and uh, and, and you know the, and the resources necessary to accomplish that goal um, so this is right up that alley yeah. I mean and, and let me deal. let me also caveat that that not I mean there's there's probably about 160 plus countries that uh, and for those of you on the I'm doing air quotes <laughs> that have cyber operations but out of those 160 plus countries, there's probably only less than I can count on one hand mm. that fit into this nation state level actor yeah, who, yeah. who truly do have these level skills. Um, but the problem is, is that uh, when something becomes widely available like this or widely talked about, then it moves down to that next tier, which I call the B level actors, which are the targeted threat actors um, who, uh, who are your high level criminal gangs, criminal gangs that do it for a living as well as some of the lower skilled nation state actors like i would put uh i put north korea into this uh yeah. into this you know where they're, where they're able to take you know information that they would get in open source re, you know open source reading like this or you know the shadow broker tools as it appears that they leveraged yeah. if they are truly accountable or, or attributable for the uh for the wanna cry attack um you know they're they're the type of actors who are sophisticated enough to take information like this and then potentially turn it into a uh, an attack vector. So I would say these are the groups that we probably ought to think about first or next as uh, as maybe taking some of the information that's being made public and trying to weaponize this into an exploit that can be leveraged. And then the group that uh, that we won't really need to talk about too much here because we probably won't have to worry about these guys until they get a Metasploit module for this. Um, is the uh, C-level actors, which are basically commodity actors. You know, they're, they're not targeted actors. They'll send out 10 million phishing emails. Hope they get five people, uh, you know, respond to it and, and click on the link. And, um, you know, and, and I don't think that these type of actors, which there's hundreds of thousands of these actors, are going to be, uh, are gonna be a, a threat with these type of tools. I think it's going to be that B and, you know, currently... Maybe currently uh, some A actor level actors are leveraging. Don't know for sure, um, but uh, I would think that the one, that, the group that we really got to watch and, and focus our intel collection on is that uh, is that next tier down of them taking this uh, this uh, information and then trying to put it into some of their tool frameworks. Well, for now, it's not a commodity attack yet, right? Which means right. you you got to spend, as it says, insanely complex. Um, and as often. Uh, as it is, we have to make sure that uh, the, the patches that are applied or whatever else you're going to do. Uh, and the great conversation that, that I had on the, on the plane over uh, to Dallas here is uh, the gentleman sitting next to me was talking about um, you know, he's in not, he's in tech and he's he works for a, a particular vendor uh, that's that's <laughs> that's got some issues with this. So I kind of asked him. I said, "Well, what, what are you guys doing?" And, and he goes uh, goes, "Yeah, it, it's been interesting." Like uh, because we have our own, you know, proprietary uh, operating system and all this, and he's like, uh, so we're trying to figure out what everybody else is doing. He's like, but we're we're frankly worried a little bit about the performance hit. I said, well, yeah, because depending on who you believe, right, somewhere between five and thirty percent performance. Like, no, not across the board. I mean, it's only for certain instructions and all that, but 
between five and thirty percent is kind of high. It's kind of a wide shot group. Well, so think about it. okay. At very best, right? Look at AWS. At very best, five percent of global cloud capacity is gone. At very worst, it's thirty percent. I mean, not quite that dramatic, but because it's not all the time and blah blah blah. But that's that's kind of a significant thing. I mean, that, that's a that's a lot of capacity just went to hell. Yeah, if I if I work for AWS, I might be thinking, hey, that's thirty percent, potentially thirty percent more in my P and L. But uh, I'm sure they're well, not thinking in yeah. terms like this. They would they would probably much rather not have to deal with this head, headache than have to have their customers upgrade their capacity because um, this is this is a big problem for cloud providers, and, and we're a cloud provider as well as a partner with AWS and Azure. Yeah. And um, and what's really frustrating is for us, we have tons of vendors, as I'm sure all cloud providers have. And every vendor had different levels of access to the embargoed information. So, uh, that drives me nuts, by and, the way. Yeah, and, which I, under, I completely understand the reason for embargoing information because, uh, you, you know, especially something like this, even though it's very complex to execute, you don't want people trying to figure it out, uh, you know, before you can develop the patch. But now, uh, you know, we have, you know, roughly about 30 vendors that we work with that we count on, whether they're software, you know, and, and versions of software and stuff that, that operate inside of our environment. And uh, and so now we're, you know, we're having, you know, we're literally running a matrix of, okay, who's provided a patch, who hasn't provided a patch, because you can't really come up. Unfortunately, with this pro, I mean, with this particular attack, um, if you're not patched all the way around in the cloud, if you got any vulnerable area, then you're, you're potentially, your customer base is potentially vulnerable. So for us, if, uh, you know, if our, even if our hypervisor is patched, if our customer OSs are, are not patched, then obviously they're vulnerable. Or if we were not able to put, put, you know, patch our OS and they patched their, but they patched their guest or our hypervisor, but they patched their guest OS, then they'd still be vulnerable. And um, the mismatches so, are nutty. Yeah, and then, and then when you think about the third-party, you know, encryption tools that have to be patched, and uh, you know, making sure that you do that the right way, because if you don't do that the right way, then you lose your yeah, data. Yeah, say because you, you you're changing the way. Uh, you're changing the way this, the CPU is accessed, right? Yes. So uh, there's crypto functions that don't like that when you change things like that, which could nuke. Oh boy, that seems like a bad day. Yep. <laughs> so, so my advice to people is to be is to treat this like, even though you know, it's, you know, it was interesting that I found out today that and realized is that it came out as an important patch, not a critical patch, um, which was shocking to me, but. My, my advice is to is for people to treat this as a critical patch and try to get it done within 30 to 60 days. Well, so, look, let's go back to our threat model, though. So, the, the, you know, Joe Average user probably isn't going to worry too much because it isn't commodity yet. Uh, and until it is, it's one of those, like, oh, that's exotic and cool, but I'm not James Bond. Um, which is, for, for stuff like this, I think it's a valid argument. I'm not minimizing it, but what I'm saying is, this takes a lot of resource, and somebody's unless unless you know unless you've really got something that's critical, probably not going to expend a lot all the much resource to go after you specifically. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, the the the, the five to thirty percent uh, performance hit is essentially tied to when you're uh, when you're going back between uh, application and and doing things like hammering the CPU for a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, for, for useful stuff, right? So network traffic, uh, disk access, memory access. So when you're doing intense CPU intensive stuff, that's when. So ironically, when you're doing stuff that the CPU really needs to get busy on, right. that's when you start seeing. The more you do that, the more you start seeing the slowdown. Uh, so they're talking about all these articles that, that thumb through and said, you know, average user probably won't notice. If you're on Twitter, 
streaming Netflix, watching stuff, probably not going to notice. If you're on AWS and you've got high bandwidth applications, things that really chew CPU and disk and, and do lots of crunching. Yeah, lots of graphic notice. programs. Right. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You're, you're floating point calculations, uh, AI, ML. Hold on. Floating point calculations. Uh, yeah, that's, that's you know, that kind of complex math. That That's what they're using. I mean, that's what a lot of AWS capacity is for, right? Right. All those kind of exotic, cool uh, machine learning AI kind of uh, capabilities they've launched recently. Um, you know that that's going to be a problem. So this starts to feel like we've now um, more formally, I guess, uh, started class potentially have the ability to classify vulnerabilities based on essentially who, who's part of the the, the the sort of the threatscape, right? And, and this the Joe user is not as opposed to the you know uh, the crypto locker types of things. This seems geared at somebody operating a data center. Uh, or operating large numbers of uh, you know, intensive, sensitive data being processed a lot. Yeah, that's that's probably why my uh, pucker factor is a little higher than most others, and why we're treating it as a critical patch. Well, um, you guys are the yeah. secure organization, right? Yeah, so we're a secure cloud hosting company, and uh, and so we we, uh, we we're definitely treating it. But but you know the the instinct would be to hey patch patch as soon as you can. But uh, like like everybody, we're we're trying to line up. To make sure that we're doing it in the right sequence, like uh, some of your anti, you know, another little factoid out there is some of your antivirus providers are actually blocking the Windows patches from uh, from installing because it needs a key registry change. Oh, um, and so you got to, you know, so that's how complex <laughs> it is. Is uh, you know, you literally have to list out all your vendors and then and then go through and say, okay, on Windows environment, is this impactful? Should we uh, wait for a patch in a Linux environment? You know, and then of course there's different flavors of Linux. Um, you know, is, is this impactful because it, every Linux uh, flavor, you know, addresses a kernel differently. And, um, and so it, it's, uh, we, we literally have the matrix from hell that we're tracking all this information in and filling it in. And we, we've got, you know, we've been doing the parallel planning, uh, but our goal is to get it patched within the timelines that you would do a critical patch. Yeah, and, and that makes, I mean, like I said, that given your threat profile, that absolutely makes sense. Um, I, I want to kind of bring this back to, just for a second, uh, because if you're not, if you just sort of kind of gloss over, it, you're like, oh, another vulnerability. You're like, hold on. But what's happening is Microsoft, Apple, the Linux community, and various other OS companies are having to to basically carry the water for Intel at this point. Yeah. I don't think on Intel, but for the last twenty years, there's been a we'll call it a, a an undocumented feature that's been and the, but that's all. That's always the method. Somebody goes, hey. Some developer somewhere, or some engineer in this case somewhere, thought, you know what, we could get better performance if we did blah blah blah. And along comes somebody who goes, hey, you know what I could do with that? <laughs> I could, I could yeah. beat you. Well, well, I mean, you know, companies make risk decisions all the time, and um, I tell you what, I bet you those Intel guys are going, you know, twenty years of profit, I'll take it again, right? Yeah, but. but- but, but you know, uh, I mean, this, I think this is going to be a short-term problem. I mean, we, we also heard from Intel that they, they've got a patch coming out, a firmware patch coming out, uh, and, you know, or they've already provided to their vendors, and yeah. now we're waiting on our, our uh, Blade vendors to provide it to us. So uh, I, I think it'll be a short-term um, black eye for Intel. Um, I mean, obviously— As it always is, yeah, right? We can— yeah, we you know, but uh, but it's definitely I think one of the first of many that we'll see. I mean, we, you know, it used to be we would find flaws in Java, we would find find flaws in Microsoft Office, well, and my squirrels found flaws in yeah, Java. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, you know, so so we've we've been mostly 
focus, you know, the threat. Re- the bottom line is the threat researchers are getting better and are moving down the stack and finding 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 more and more flaws. Used to be we only found application and OS level flaws. Now we're finding hardware, you know, a hardware flaw that was essentially found by threat, re- you know, yeah. security researchers, um, and uh, and you know, as well as the. Uh, um, you know, the uh, the TLS and the SSL, you know, uh, issues that we had before, you know, we're getting down to that transport layer. And so uh, I think that we're getting more and more talent in the threat research, which is a good thing. The bad thing is they're uncovering a lot of badness that is really, really hard to fix. I mean, you know, since I've been here in the three and a half years, we've had heart bleed. We've had, uh, um, uh, what, what was the uh, one with the SSL? Um, Bash. Bash, bash, yeah, the bash. Oh, no, no, SS, uh, SS, so uh, open SSL was hard bleed. You had the bash bug that was kind of nasty. Uh, there's probably been four. I mean, shell shock. That's yeah, shell shock. I couldn't. Yeah, that's the one I was trying to remember. Shell shock. You know, you had shell shock. I mean, it, it's it's been a it's you been know a ride. It's, yeah. It, but but the good news is is that it's threat researchers that are moving deeper in you know deeper into the into the stack and. Um, and, but unfortunately, we still have, you know, so we're discovering, you know, we're, unfortunately, we're not discovering less vulnerabilities at the application in the OS. Right. But, um, you know, at least we're finding the really, really difficult ones. Um, and I think there's, there's probably more to come. Well, know? hopefully we're finding them before the bad guys do. But, I, I, you know, again, we're patching. So the fact that Intel is going to provide a patch, I suspect that it's going to be into the management of uh, because it used to be a CPU was independent of of kind of the chips around it, right? It just functioned. Now you've got cache, so that's that's very it's a it's a community of things that supports that CPU. Um, I suspect that there's something that, that well, they're not going to fix the flaw because it's in the chip itself, right? So right. you can't fix newer the, versions. They said newer, newer versions, versions of the CPU. Uh, yeah, right? hey, maybe that is a great business proposition for them. I'll tell you <laughs> what, man, CPU uh, CPU uh, global uh, slowdown in sell- sales. Yeah. <laughs> Let's unleash the beast and everybody. But I don't. That's the no, thing. Like, that's what, not. I don't that, think that, that's that doesn't make. I mean, we yeah. both thought that doesn't make any sense. But can you imagine? I, I saw a. Um, <laughs> I saw on Twitter, and I and I and I, and I replied to the person, and it's kind of like where we left it. But so, and somebody said, you know, oh, their recommendation isn't to replace all the chips. I'm like, what? Like in all but the most secure environments, what idiot would say that? Like, oh, go replace all the chips in your in your uh, systems out there. It's like. That sounds like a fantastic idea. Go broke doing that, right? Yeah. So you've got, but the danger naturally now is that you've got Microsoft creating essentially breaking, disable. Let's say disabling because breaking is not the right word. Removing and disabling functionality that the chip natively exposes, right? For performance gains. So now you've got stuff like this uh, uh, Epic. Is it Epic? Yeah, I think Epic uh, had the. Uh, uh, had the had the uh, uh, performance problem. They had there was this people were trying to log into the, their game online gaming system. They weren't able to log in. They're like, hey, hold on, we're having problems at AWS with our with our platform. Oh, it turns out that we've spiked the hell out of the CPU as a result of we think of applying this patch. And there's been other anecdotal evidence. Like there's a uh, uh, there's been a uh, a couple of folks that posted on on uh, on Twitter. We're staring at one of the charts now. It's like. Yeah, you know, before we did, before we, we uh, I applied this thing, had a workload, it was hovering around 2% CPU, um, you know, it, it applied the patch, still, server still not doing anything, but now it's 3x, uh, 
And, you know, ooh, 4%, big deal. Well, <laughs> that's at idle. So yeah. that could be very significant. So now you've got this turns into a – so I think this turns into more than just a security problem, right? This becomes an ops problem. This involves the entire company. Yeah. Because now you've got potential capacity issues. Um, yeah, and, and that's that you know it's it's one of those things. I mean, part of the best practice for vulnerability threat management is to test all your patches before you apply them. And uh, and and how many of you listen to this podcast really vigorously do that? And it's not just so much just testing your patches in this particular instance to make sure it works with your you know if you got custom applications or the applications that you're running. It's also about uh, having a good load test, accurate load test to tell what, you know, what is this patch going to do to performance? Yeah. I think that's where a lot of people are going to, are, are going to struggle. And, um, and, and it, you know, it goes back to really understanding what does your application do? You know, uh, is, you know, is it, is it a CPU hog? Is it, uh, you know, is it going to be really, you know, am I, am I going to need to increase my cores, you know, that I have in my, uh, should, should I just, uh, you know, uh, may, may, maybe I just uh, add a couple of cores to my uh, AWS instance yeah, and, and apply the patch and, um, you know, in, in my production. And if it doesn't fall over, then, uh, you know, then I know I'm good. Um, because I, that's what we see with a lot of our customers, especially in our public cloud customers, is that it really is, you know, because, I mean, some of them have hundreds of thousands of people interacting through their API gateways. Yeah. And it is really hard sometimes to to uh, to really load test something like that yeah. unless you you have you know the generators to be able to do that and very few people very few I guess you know yeah. you know so so it could be one of those things you kind of stick your thumb up in the air and you say okay I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a temporary opex hit and I'm gonna you know you know add add a, you know a, you know thirty percent more processing power and then I'm you know go to the worst case and then and then apply the patch and then back it off after that I bet. I bet if you, if you know, especially if you're a large enterprise customer, one of these large cloud companies, you might could even get a little bit of a discount if, uh, you know. Yeah, or no kidding. Yeah, you know, but the the way everything is, you is uh, is usage based now. You probably not, you know, it's probably not going to be out of that much money, and it would probably give you a little bit of peace of mind. I tell you what. So I wonder how many, because this all ultimately comes down to a risk equation that includes more than just at this point, more than just security, right? Finances. Uh, operational impact, uh, capacity. Um, I wonder how many organizations are looking at this, doing sort of the, the risk mo- risk math for this, and saying, you know, exotic. We're not we're, we're not all together probably in that targeted area for the kind of threat this is gonna this is gonna be until it's commoditized, and then of course everybody panics and, and applies. Um, maybe we just sit this one out. Yeah, I kind of wonder how, what what the because there's got to be that conversation has got to be happening in these big war rooms. Because say you've got, you know, your average your average Fortune 500, you've got a couple thousand workloads sitting out there somewhere. Maybe it's running your website, maybe your streaming media service, maybe it's doing some backend credit card processing. I don't know whatever it is doing. And you got to sit there and go, okay, performance wise, what's this going to cost us in terms of worst case scenario? What's the dollar impact? Right to me per minute per hour per day, and, and assuming this really is let's say thirty percent impact. Okay, what does that mean? Well, thirty percent is a big number. I mean, take the mean, take the middle of that. Say fifteen percent. That's still a big number, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're talking about in the thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and, and to say, will somebody exploit this? 
This is this turns into like a, I don't know we call it a black swan right so maybe the odds are so low the impact is huge mm-hmm. but the odds are so low do we just kind of let this one do we sit it out do yeah we wait yeah and that's kind of when you get back to the threat modeling we did before for me risk equals vulnerability plus threat I mean yeah. I, when most people do risk management whether they're flying helicopters or cybersecurity risk you know it's all about the you know uh, um, vulnerability versus you know plus threat. And, and so when you add that, when you look at that threat variable and you kind of dissect that, I think that it's that it's going to take a, uh, a um, you know, I, I like to think about it in numbers. You know, the, the number of, of analysts or, uh, or security threat, number of threat actors who could actually engineer something like this is probably going to be relatively small. Yeah. Uh, probably less than, you know, I'm just going to throw a number out there. I have no science behind it. We'll just say maybe 20 or 30. Sure. You know, high-level PhDs, um, um, unfortunately, probably uh, um, educated here in the U.S. and working in other countries. As they always are. Um, but uh, I think that uh, there, there's there's probably very few people who will be able to weaponize this this threat. But it only takes that one person to weaponize it and then release it to the lower-tier actors and, and monetize that to, to bring to bring that number up of the number of people because at the end of the day, it's all about the number of actors who can who can and the skill level that it takes for them to uh, um, to to have any success against your environment with you know exploiting one of these. Um, so I, I think I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you that uh, while this is this is potentially bad and it is it is a really hard problem to fix. So that's why you want to start at least doing right. the analysis now to figure out how do I fix it. But if I'm, you know, if I was in a cloud provider and what I, you know, what I do now, you know, if I didn't have any data that I was really that concerned, you know, uh, is regulated data something I'm going to be highly penalized in, maybe under GDPR here in a couple of months, um, I might just wait for the hard, wait for the firmware fix because that might be the cleanest way to fix it. Because I think I think you and I discussed last week probably what's going to happen is. Software is going to patch it now. Firmware fix is going to be applied, and then the software is going to pull their patch out. You know, in a, in a subsequent well, well, yeah, so update. Yeah, or, or like we like we always see, we the, the patch rushes out because everybody panics. Every, you know, those that uh, those that panic panicked to patch will find all the uh, let's just call it the, the unplanned fixes, right? Where suddenly uh, you have a critical process uh, that happens. Uh, whether there's a backup, whether it's a you know some sort of encryption or something or other, and all of a sudden that don't work anymore, and you're like, uh, wait a second, that's not good. Mm-hmm. So I've I've decreased on, on this side of the scale, I've decreased my risk a little bit. On this side of the scale, I've broken functionality that the company depends on. Yeah. Well, that's not good. Yeah. I, I suspect we'll find a bunch of those because I, there's no way we've given this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. It has to be. This has to be engine, re-engineered, right? So this is not the kind of thing where we go, apply the patch, we're fine. You actually have to re-engineer the way the chips function, re-engineer the way uh, they're designed. I mean, we're going literally back to the drawing board, design board. Um, so there, there's no way we've had enough time to regression test all the critical things that, like nobody, I, I'm, there, I'm sure there's somebody right now going, Oh hell, that's not going to work, and they've got a light bulb going on for a reason they can't do it. Um, so yeah, I tell you, we're we're going through that right now in our in our war room that we've got together in the big matrix that we're building to to build up all the dependencies and uh, um, you know you know our first inclination is like let's patch 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 patch, but uh, 
then as we started continuing doing the mission analysis, well, does this third-party tool have an effect? Oh, yeah, it does. Does this part? Does this third-party tool have it? Yeah, it does. So, you know, by the end of the day, we figured out there was probably about 20 or 30 vendors that we needed to <laughs> coordinate with to make sure that we, either one, they had it, and, you know, some we were we pretty well understood where they whether or not they would be an impact, um, but we still confirmed with them, and then we had about half of them that we were pretty sure would have an impact, and then obviously we're you know working closely with them to get their patches in place. I think the lesson learned out of this, and I'll I'll let you you give us this one, but to me, the big lesson learned that we pick up out of this is, I'll probably say this for the hundredth time if you guys listen to this podcast uh, often enough. Uh, the lesson for me is know your threat model because you know th- this it keeps you out of that panic breaking things in a panic um, n- knowing what what you're what you're actually worried about knowing who the threat actors you actually care about are and the things that could go wrong I think that's probably of anything out of this because a lot of this is you know I'm, it's not in your control if you're the end, if you're the and user of a CPU, you're buying it, you're implementing it, you don't have a whole lot of say in how it's done. Um, but yeah, know your threat model. What do you think, Jeff? Uh, absolutely, and then, and then knowing what the what the what your true vulnerability is to those threats, yeah. and what what is the probability. And then the other thing that I would add, I mean, I've I've worked some really big global incidents before, and the biggest thing that I've learned is that the truth doesn't come out for for seventy two hours. <laughs> and so, if you take any actions, because because what I mean, every major incident response I've done, you know, for the first seventy two hours, unless it was just cut and dry, black and white, like uh, I, you know, I was sitting inside a JTF GNO when 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 a Russian satellite, you know, collided with an American uh, Iridium satellite. Well, there's no, you know, there's nothing to figure out there. You know, you, you know, you it went boom. Yeah, you know, there, there was no additional information to come out. That, that was a black and white incident. But incidents like this, where information is coming from many, many different sources, a lot of times what you want to do is you want to sit back and you want to go in the military. We call it the mission analysis phase, where you're, you're, you're collecting the information. You know, what do you know? What do you need to know? You know, what are, what are some of the, you know, what are the questions you've gotten answered? What are the questions that are still out there that need to be answered? And then what are you doing about it? Or what should you do about it? And you start tracking information in those three um, buckets, and then that helps you start visualizing a plan that will come together after that first 48, 72 hours. Because I can tell you, we were we were almost, uh, I mean, we were probably looking. First thing we did was we created a frequently asked question because we feel like that's, an FAQ is a great way to communicate to our customers and what, what I, that makes sense. What we did was I we sit there and go, what what questions would our customers have, and um, and so we kept we started populating that as I as our what we know what we don't know because in some of those questions we didn't have an answer to, and then uh, and then we uh, as we got more and more answers filled in, um, we we've uh, you know and like I said we we probably spent anywhere from eighteen to twenty four hours, you know, uh, getting that first information leveling out there. And then once we got it out there, now over the weekend, uh, we had a couple of changes on Saturday. Um, today's Monday. We had almost no changes over Sunday. So it's been at that, about that 72-hour where kind of the community has come together in consensus of what this problem really is and what people should be doing about it. So, so it's not a rule of thumb, but it's kind of, from my experience of, of, done a bunch of, of doing a bunch of global incidents, it's... You know, when, it, when it's complex like this, it's best to kind of monitor the situation for about 72 hours. Well, and, and that's, the, that's the other thing that, that this will tell us is that we, we need to, um, 
<laughs> we, we, san maintain sanity. Keep your cool. Uh, figure out what's going on before you re before you jump in and start doing. I think that's that's kind of a big lesson too. But boy, I tell you what, I'm looking forward to how. Uh, as a final note here, I'm kind of looking forward to how this evolves over the next 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, year. Because I don't think we've seen the last of this sucker. Because I mean, it's not just servers and workstations that Intel chips are in, right? That's that's the big deal. Yep. Uh, fi there's firewalls that run on them. There's uh, IPSs that run on them. There's all kinds of cool stuff that runs off Intel chips. And uh, so now you know how we came up with about 30 vendors we needed to check. Yeah. With. Well, and it and it wasn't just it wasn't just Intel. There, you know, AMD had similar yep. problems long ago, well, not too long ago, I guess. Uh, and others, and it's Android, it's Apple. It's this is one of those truly truly impactful um, really big deal and if you're not careful if you're not if you don't do your analysis properly this will scare the crap out and scare the pants off you yeah and uh, unfortunately uh, I think uh, sometimes in cases like this uh, more often than I'm that I'm comfortable saying some of this sometimes we get more harm than good out of these things all right well it's been fun yep thanks for uh, joining us that's been uh, a lot of time just flew by well, you're probably uh, were you here all weekend? You guys working all weekend on this thing? Yeah, we we pretty much worked all weekend. Uh, well, I'd say it slowed down a little bit yesterday. Okay. Um, so I was able to get out and do some mountain biking, but uh, get some know, of that stress out. Yeah, get some stress out. <laughs> I feel it, like this is one of those. This is one of those times where back when I worked security ops, you just might as well uh, pull out the cock. You're not going home for a while. Yeah. But we're we're actually in a pretty good steady state. We've got our plan nailed down now that we've heard from all of our vendors and. Uh, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about where we are now and uh, in the glide path that we're on. Very cool. Thanks, Jeff. It's been fun. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, folks, for listening. This has been another Down Secure Rabbit Hole podcast uh, with Jeff Schilling here at Armour. And uh, I tell you what, uh, I'll say it again because it's, it's worth repeating. Threat model, threat model, threat model. If you've not done it for your organization, if you've not ever tried it, there's dozens of different ways, different models, different approaches. Try one. It'll help you keep a cool head. Uh, as it hopefully you, you are in this case. And uh, if you've got uh, questions, hashtag DTSR on Twitter. And uh, Jeff, you got a Twitter handle? Uh, CSO, Arbor CSO. Arbor CSO, all right. Easy to remember. There you go. Um, that, that, that is pretty easy to remember. All right. Thanks, you guys, for listening. We will catch you on another Down to Secure Abitable podcast and another time, another place. We'll see you later. Ciao, y'all. As we fade out on another Down the Security Rabbit Hole episode, we'd like to encourage you to chat with our hosts and guests using the Twitter hashtag PoundDTSR. Please check out the show notes, catch up on any episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Our website is whiterabbit.net, W-H-1-T-3-R-A-B-B-I-T.net. So on behalf of Rafal, James, for now it's goodbye. We'll see you soon on another Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast.